Who was the first president to visit every state in the Union during his term in office? And what president wrote the first airmail letter in the United States? Is it the same man? It is the same person. It's all that, huh? That is exciting. Okay. And, Bob, how many new animal species were added to the list last year? Hmm. Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marshall Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Well, I'm going to start with two presidential questions, Marcia. Oh, Marcia. yay! <laughs> I live for those. Who was the first president to visit every state in the Union during his term in office? It was the president who also wrote the first airmail letter in the United States. So what president was this? Was it, uh, I have to think it was... <sighs> Was it FDR? No, it wasn't FDR. Before FDR? Yes, I'll give you a hint. He was the first president to visit every state during his term. There weren't 50 states. Oh, no. So this this could take you back. You visited 49, haven't you? Yes, I have. I'm not a president, so. (laughs) Aren't you, Bob? Uh, Well, tell me who, Bob. It was the first president of the United States. Oh! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, George Washington did both. He wrote the first airmail letter in the U.S. He, believe it or not, sent a letter from Philadelphia to New Jersey by way of a French balloonist. So that's the first airmail letter. But uh, according to Nathaniel Philbrook, who's the author of Travels with George, that's a new book, Washington used his celebrity from the Revolutionary War to try to unite the 13 stubbornly independent colonies into a single country, and he did that through a series of road tours. He started in 1789, just before he was taking over, and over the span of two years, he visited all 13 original states, 14 if you count Maine, which was then part of Massachusetts. That's very tricky, Bob. It was tricky. But it's uh, very enlightening, too, when you put it like that. And uh, here's something that will ring a bell, if you remember as you were a kid, you'd always see signs, George Washington slept here. Yeah. Well, he traveled horseback and by carriage along these rutted dirt roads and over rising rivers. You can imagine how hard that was. In fact, his trip through Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia in 1792 took three months to cover 1,800 miles. And what he did was drive into town in his carriage. He usually had his Continental Army uniform. He was greeted by citizens, and he made a point of staying in local inns along the way. That's why you used to see the George Washington slept here signs up and down the East Coast. Oh, really? He wanted to put a face on the new Constitution and the new nation. He would stay, and he would eat. He would drink with the people at the inns, and he'd stay overnight, and he paid for it all himself. You don't see that anymore. That's how he did it. That's how he united the early United States. Pretty interesting, You know, it should still be done that way, just one-on-one as much as you can, and that's awesome. Now, how many of the modern presidents have visited all 50 states? Oh, not many. Two. Only four. Richard Nixon, the first George Bush— Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Now, most of those presidents had eight years in which to do it. 
The elder Bush visited all 50 before the end of his first and only oh, term. Wow, that's pretty impressive. 50 yeah. in four years, as if there's not enough to do. <laughs> okay. All right, now you had, what was your question there? Well, we always talk about all the animals going extinct every year. Mm-hmm. But nay, there are new species discovered all the time. Okay, yeah, I guess we don't think of that, do no. we? In 2021... Scientists at the Natural History Museum in London added how many new species of animals to the world roster? In one year's time, and we're talking in modern times, 2021, how many? Did they add? I'll say, this would probably be a lot, I'll say 10 new species. (laughs) Uh, Five, two, (laughs) one. How many? 552. Oh my God! Yeah, you wouldn't think, would you? No, it's true. The list included two new types of dinosaurs... (laughs) They discovered on the Isle of Wight, W-I-G-H-T. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, they found the bones to these new humongous creatures. They found a lot of new crustaceans called copepods. They're found all over the world, not just in one area. And they kind of look like shrimp. They're a food source for other marine life. And there was a new snake in India they found. Well, that's encouraging when all you hear about are species that are dying Extinct, off yeah. or being 552 killed. 552 that have never been identified before. That's hard to believe. Yeah. That's hard to believe. That was very good. Thank you, Bob. Speaking <laughs> of discovering new things. Okay, let's. How did technology help British history museums discover things in the first two decades of the 21st century? So we have computers. It had to be that, No. No. Go ahead. Tell me. Tell me. <laughs> it's metal detectors. <laughs> oh. Metal detectors in a country where the history stretches far into the past. In the first two decades of the 21st century, British museums acquired more than 5,000 artifacts found by members of the general public. Things like Bronze Age axes, Iron Age cauldrons, and Roman coins. Makes you kind of want one, doesn't it? But, you know, you have to live someplace like England where these things aren't very far under the surface in yards and fields and farmlands and parking lots. I suppose Lake Michigan shoreline doesn't have a lot of ancient... You don't have a lot of that around here. But think of this. Centuries and centuries of history in Europe, you'll find discoveries. And in Great Britain, it's almost always somebody's backyard. Roman coin from, you know, 20 AD or something. Why not us? (laughs) A Roman coin in your yard in Wisconsin, that would be something. (laughs) That That really would be something. How many dreams, Bob, does the average person have in a year? In a year? Yeah. Wow, sometimes, I mean, I think I have like five or six a night sometimes. So what would that be? (sighs) That one, you were that English lady being very snooty with me the other night. That was... (laughs) Were we watching uh, Creatures Great and Small again? Either that or we were watching something on PBS, and you turned into one of those people. Uh, How many dreams does the average person have in a year? There's 365 days, let's say... Three or four hundred dreams a year. You just said before you have three or four dreams. I have five, but I may be unusual. No, the average is 1,460 dreams a year. Okay, so there's an average. So it's like, it's just exactly what you said, three or four. A night. A night, A night on average. You ever go back to dreams after you wake up? I have done that before. I've succeeded in doing that. Me too. But it never really turns out to be as good as the original dream. Yeah, it never quite connects the same and something is radically different, (laughs) like the way I look or... What is my father doing here with Bob? That did, that's not <laughs> supposed to be. What uh, Do you dream in color? 
I do dream in color, and in fact, I have, uh, now I know this because I've had a dream end some time back. It was in total color, and there were credits coming up <laughs> with music. Oh, you're, yeah. And the credits came up with music at the end of my dream. Wow. And I was thinking, wow, that's a nice dream. That's really yeah. well photographed. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was watching too many movies. Never can watch too many movies. I, I dream I'm reading a lot. I've dreamt that before where you see the words and you're moving your eyes across the words, but you can't figure out what you're reading. Yeah, it's It's just going very fast. Well, remember an episode or two back, Marcia, you had a question on what group had the three of the most addictive or catchy tunes? Yes. And it turned out to be Queen, right? In the top 10, yeah. And what were the songs? It was We Will Rock You, We Are the Champions, and Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes. Well, a listener commented on it and uh, came to our website Jeff Burrell, who listens from Kansas City, he said, I just listened to the episode about catchy tunes, made me wonder why the Bee Gees didn't make the Ah. list beside Queen. And this is interesting because this is his personal experience. When I took a CPR course many years ago, two songs were used to teach chest compressions. One was Another One Bites the Dust. (laughs) It's funny, isn't it? Uh And the other one was, appropriately, Staying Alive Really? And that's how they do it while they were pumping to keep your rhythm going. Both songs are 120 beats per minute, which was the recommended speed for performing CPR. That's why they used it. I didn't... He said the instructors were three EMTs that had come to the plant to teach the class. The company was three men and a dummy from <laughs> from St. Joseph, Missouri. But anyway, he said that the, those were the two songs they used. What were some of the other songs on that list? Of I 20? got them here. You know what the oldest song on the list was? No. Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells. Jingle Bells Jingle as an addictive song. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Some of the other songs uh, in the top uh, 20 were The Village People, YMCA. Oh, that makes y- sense. MCA Journey, Don't Stop Believing. Okay. Taylor Swift, Shake It Off. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And Michael Jackson, what do you think? Um, Beat it. That's it. All right. (laughs) And that, again, was from the scientists at the University of St. Andrews who had some kind of a study they did. Yes, on earworms. Very good. Okay, let me ask you this. Which sex has more left-handed people, male or female? Males. Why? Because they're deformed or they have a problem? Is that what you're thinking? (laughs) All right, you're right. There are twice as many left-handed men as women. So for some unknown reason, left-handedness generally is a male characteristic. Mm -hmm. All right. Which people have more actual hairs on their heads? Women. I'm not talking about male or female. I'm talking about color. Blondes, redheads, or brunettes? Oh, okay. I will say black hair. Brunettes, then. Okay. Well, no, brunette and black are different. Okay, but I asked you three. I said blondes, redheads, or brunettes. Oh, did you? Yes, I did. Sorry. <laughs> brunettes. Wrong. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Didn't even get the question right, uh, and, and I gave it to you, and now you're still wrong. Okay. okay. Blondes, believe it or not. Really? With brunettes next, and then redheads. Blondes have twice as many hairs on their head as redheads, about 150,000 hairs. In my experience with blondes, I never see them with a lot of hair. Of course, they're probably not blonde anymore. So who knows? Oh, there oh, we go. I they, just lost half my friends. Like, spo- <laughs> spoken like a former redhead. There you go. Okay. Well, that was helped out a little. Oh, my goodness. But no, I do you know a lot of 
full-headed I'm not going to get into that either. You're not that, me Marsh. either. I'm not no. going to get into okay. that. Maybe we should just edit know? out everything. How do you know? How do you know? <laughs> little snippy there. Brunette girls don't like blondes. That's interesting. Oh, no, I was I oh. was Auburn. Oh, well, Auburn girls don't like blondes then. Oh, I like blondes. Oh, did you? As friends. Oh, <laughs> I don't like men. Not close friends, Blond- though. <laughs> All right, let's move on. (laughs) Okay. Which country, Bob, has the cleanest air in the world? The country that has the cleanest air in the world. Uh So we're talking someplace that has less pollution, so probably has less industry. So I'd say somewhere in Africa? No. Oh, Finland. Finland. Okay, so I, I was going to go to Scandinavia next. Oh, I was, I but really you didn't. So you're wrong. Yeah, okay. Okay, and Helsinki is considered the cleanest city in the world. Not just uh, the air, but the, the, the entire city. city. Yeah, and you know what countries have the most polluted air? India, Pakistan, Mongolia, and Afghanistan as of 2020. So countries that are industrializing, that are developing and coming along. Developing and poor, often. Yeah. Not, not all of them are poor, but... Uh, I thought maybe, where were you, Mexico City once, and it was so, you couldn't oh, even very, breathe? Yeah, it was, like, uh, it was like walking behind a bus. That's how it smelled. And really? That, that's because of the, the terrain. It's, yeah, it's in a valley, It's right? in a valley, yeah, so all the pollution goes down there. Okay, let's talk about average lifespans, okay? All right. I'll give you the living thing, and you give me your best guess for the average lifespan. Like okay. Like housefly. Oh, I think those don't last very long at all. Three days? Surprisingly, one month. Okay. Dragonfly. Oh, dragonfly. I like those. I always like to be around those. Um, uh, I'll do a week on those also. Ah, okay. No, 24 hours. Though. Really? Yeah. 24 hours is all the longer they live. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Mosquitoes. Whatever it is, it's, <laughs> Two seconds. it's twice the length of time it should be. Six and a half days. Oh, my God. Almost a week. Yeah, it said six or seven days, so I settled on six and a half. Uh, how about your black garden ant? How long do they live? Don't know. Four years. Four years? Yeah. Cats? Cats can last about, uh, well, what? Our cat lasted 20 years? Mm, 21. God. But he was above average. It was a long time, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't my cat. That's why it seems so long. Um, okay, what's the average? Uh, 12 to 18 years. 12 to for 18. Kate. Okay. And for dogs, it's 10 to 13 years. How about a horse? I don't know how long a horse lasts. I know. 10 years? It's more. It's 25 to 30. Wow. Think of racehorses. They may be only uh, five, seven years at the most they're racing, but the, the rest of their lives, if they're allowed to live, could be 25 years. That's, that's 25 years of breeding. That <laughs> could we, be fun. And we always need more super glue. <laughs> oh, Marsha. <laughs> the, oldest, the oldest known horse was called Old Billy, born in 1760, and he lived 62 years. Wow. According to my Guinness books. <laughs> All right. Speaking okay. of old. Yes. Where is the oldest seaside resort in the United States? It's been attracting tourists for 200 plus years. St. Augustine? I'll give you some hints. Okay. It's I'll not just safe. give you hints about the states, okay? Okay. New Jersey, Connecticut, North Carolina, Rhode Island, or Arizona. The oldest seaside resort in the U.S., you North could scratch Carol- one of those pretty easily. Arizona. I don't think there's yeah. any sea there. No, no. Okay. North Carolina. North Carolina. No. But that's a good guess, too. It's on the Thank coast. Thank you, Bob. What would you... I'll give you a second chance here. Okay. Uh, New Jersey. New Jersey. New Jersey, it is. Built in 1816 on Cape May, Congress Hall 
It's the oldest seaside resort in the United States. It's builder Thomas Hughes originally called the resort the Big House, which used to be a term we used for prisons in the uh-huh. 30s movies. It was one of the largest structures in the U.S. upon its completion, but locals called it Tommy's Folly because they were skeptical that Congress Hall would draw enough guests to turn a profit, but they were soon proven wrong, and now more than 200 years later, the owners of that place are still turning a profit. So it's called called Congress Hall, Cape May, New Jersey, built in 1816, the oldest seaside resort in the United States, and are still turning a profit today. Okay. And the resort even hands out brass room keys instead of plastic ones. Oh, how sweet that is. Congress Hall in Cape May, New Jersey. Time for a break, Bob. We'll be back with more in just a moment. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. And Marsha. Smith. We're back. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. And Marsha, how many feet of film were shot for the movie Gone with the Wind? How many feet? Yeah, it's just an odd question, but it's all about what was left over, what was used. Can I have a multiple choice? Okay, I'll give you a chance here. Okay. Five feet. (laughs) (laughs) That one. 120,000 feet. Uh Uh-huh. 475,000 feet. Wow. It was a long war, civil war, so we'll go with the 400. It's 475,000 feet. It was cut to 25,000 feet. That's a lot of film shot for one film. Almost a 20th of the total length. It grossed $70 million over time. So that was a very, very big film. It was epic. And it took three years to make with 13 writers and three directors. And it cost $4 million for MGM to make it. How many writers? 13 writers, three directors, 1,000 girls tested for the part of Scarlett O'Hara. David O. Selznick had already picked Clark Gable. So the king of Hollywood was going to be it. They needed a girl. And uh, Vivian Leigh was the one they chose. All right, here's an ongoing argument, Bob. Okay. According to the most recent studies counting cerebral neurons, who is smarter, cats or dogs? That was always, you know, I always thought dogs were smarter because the dogs would respond to you, but then I heard that cats actually are smarter, and cats are... One reason we know they're smarter is because they like to ignore you. (laughs) They have a mind of their own. But I don't know. What's the answer? Yeah, that's the last thing I remembered. But not according to new studies. It is dogs. To analyze cognitive function, scientists counted neurons in the human cortex. And we humans have about 16 billion neurons in our brains. Dogs have between 429 and 623 million with the lowest being mixed breeds and the highest being uh, golden retrievers, those beautiful dogs. And kitty cats, they only average 250 million. So it is? Dogs. Dogs. So there you go. What do they have again? How many? They have between 429 and 623 million. Compared to cats that have? 250. Okay. So there you are. Our dog Buster was smarter than our cat Bowser. (laughs) There it is in black and white, according to science. That's good to know. (laughs) All right, I have a question for you. Yes, dear. It was first introduced in Ireland, but it was not a national tradition. What is the story behind Irish coffee? You've heard of Irish coffee. Yes, it has potatoes in it. No, it doesn't. (laughs) Yeah, what's the story behind Irish coffee? I don't know. They put whiskey in everything, so why not coffee? Well, it was a dark and stormy night, (laughs) Marcia. Really. 
Uh, bad weather forced a transatlantic flight to turn around and come back to the Emerald Isle of Ireland one night in the 1940s, and the restauranter Joe Sheridan was closing down his place at Foynes Airport in Ireland. But he realized that the plane's passengers were going to be tired and upset, so he stayed late made them something special, coffee mixed with a little sugar, spiked with a shot of Irish whiskey, and topped with whipped cream. He was asked by passengers, is this Brazilian coffee? He said, no, it's Irish coffee. Okay. That's a new tradition was born, so it's only been around that long. What was the year? It was in the early 1940s. Oh, okay. And Joe Sheridan, the airport restaurateur who invented it, later emigrated to America, and he worked at the Buena Vista Cafe in San Francisco, and they started serving it there in 1952. We haven't had one of those in quite a while. Irish coffee. I like it. I okay. Like it. All right. In 1959, Monsieur Megatot, what? also known as Michel Lotito of France, discovered he had a knack for eating what? <laughs> when was this? 1959. Can you give me any clue, Marsh? It's not food. Okay, paper. No. What? Glass and metal. What? So doctors x-rayed this guy's stomach and found he could consume two pounds of metal a day without a problem. Jeez. So his diet included 18 bicycles, 15 supermarket oh, trolleys, oh no. seven TV sets, six chandeliers, two beds, a pair of skis, a computer, a coffin, and it took him two years, but he polished off a Cessna light aircraft. Oh, my <laughs> God. Such odd information. It, that is, uh, it's beyond weird to me. But, oh, yeah, my goodness. I think I'll... I'll go eat a television set today. And oh, dear. I never heard of any such thing so as that. So he kept track of everything, and the gastroenterologist x-rayed his stomach. Wow. Okay. Little known fact. Here's another little known fact. What great American artist had a father who built railroads for the Russian Tsar? A famous American artist who had a father who built railroads for the Russian Tsar. I'll say. This guy painted a picture of his mother. Whistler. Yes, James Abbott McNeil Whistler. He was a U.S. emigre painter. He'd lived in Russia during his teens while his father directed construction of a railroad for Tsar Nicholas I. And then Whistler, the artist, went to West Point in his late teens, but he was forced to leave at age 19 when he failed chemistry. And <laughs> then he went abroad to live, took up painting, and became this great American artist. But yeah, his dad was his dad actually was an American who built railroads for the Russian Tsar. That's a strange another odd yeah, fact. Yeah. Yeah, but did he could he eat an airplane? No, okay. I don't think so. Well, he there. could eat a locomotive though. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's where he was headed. Okay, what state has the most man made or human made lakes? I'll give you four. Michigan, Minnesota, Oklahoma, or Louisiana. Oklahoma. You're right. It's Oklahoma. <laughs> all right. Yes. And it all comes from a huge flood called the Great Mississippi River Flood in 1927. More than 200 human-made lakes were built in Oklahoma during the subsequent years. And today, Oklahoma has more artificial lakes than any other state. Their biggest lake, the biggest human-made lake in Oklahoma, how many miles of shoreline do you think it has? Oklahoma's Lake Eufaula. Uh, for this one man-made lake. I'll say 120 miles. 600. No kidding. Yeah, it's amazing. It is. We've got to go there sometime. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Here's a question. What's the longest time a person has spent underwater and lived with full cognitive function? Oh, my question is, were they able to get any oxygen? To no. K- no. So this is holding so, their breath? No. 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 They were a drowning, I assume. Oh, okay. And yet they came back and they're fine. Yes. How long is the longest? Wow. I don't know. I mean, it, five minutes, I think, would be a long time. How long? 66 minutes. Wow. In, in 1986, two-year-old Michelle Funk of Salt Lake City, Utah, fell into a swelling creek and was underwater for 66 minutes. They revived her, and she made a complete and full recovery. Over that's, an hour you know, underwater. It, isn't it interesting it was a child? Yeah, so, that's what I was thinking. You Did know, you, a creature that doesn't have all the fear that an adult would, if that happened to them right away, you well, know? Yeah, well, and also think about it. Two years, you're not that far removed from living in an embryotic sac. That's true. That's true. So it's like going back to the womb. Yeah, I don't little know. A little cold, a little being tossed around. Yeah, I don't know I don't what this know. is. And I'm just going to shut my have eyes nothing in to base, enjoy it. Yeah, <laughs> I have nothing to base that on, but, you know, the connection wow. there. But what, what was the uh, year again and the name of the person? 80, 1986, Michelle Funk. Wow, that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah. All right. The rattlesnake, I'll bet you didn't know, has the best heat-detecting equipment in nature. No, I didn't know that. Now you do. Using its two organs between its eyes and nostrils, it can locate a mouse by its body heat. Wow. Can sense its heat from how far away? Ooh. So it's got to be surprising, I guess. Yeah. Like maybe, uh, I don't know, uh, 100 feet. No. How far? 15 miles. Oh, my God. How can that be? I can't imagine. It can sense the mouse heat. That uh, snake must never be hungry. (laughs) It can can smell food 15 miles away. And then it's got to get there. Yeah, but I'm sure there's some between here and 15 miles. I wonder how, yeah, I don't know. Where did you find that? For God's sakes. Again, the useless book of information. Uh Okay. Okay, you got a last question for me? Yes, I do. Gilbert Stewart. You remember that famous painting of George Washington where it's not quite complete. There's like clouds and there's George Washington's head and his part of his body. Yeah, yeah. It's a famous painting. Uh-huh. He failed to finish that intentionally, and he profited because of it. Why and how? Why and how? I have no idea. Well, he, it's called the uh, Antheneum portrait, painted in Greek style with clouds in the foreground. You see it in schoolrooms across the country. Gilbert Stuart intentionally failed to finish it. He painted it in 1796. He didn't deliver it to Martha Washington, who commissioned it. Why? He kept the painting and copied it repeatedly in hopes of getting rich. <laughs> he never finished the background so he could truthfully tell Martha whenever she requested the portrait, not yet complete. Oh, he's kind of a, a scoundrel. Uh, I was going to say a scallywag but for the, sure. <laughs> but that's considered a great American painting, Gilbert yeah, so, Stewart's portrait, so, unfinished portrait of George Washington. So that's the one that hangs everywhere. It's unfinished. Which which unfinished one? Just the same unfinished one? That's a good question. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm going to finish with a quote from Albert Einstein. All right. Okay. He said, only two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. <laughs> and I'm not sure about the former. <laughs> but he's certain about stupidity. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard that one before. Yeah, me either. Usually he, it's always something about science and God or yeah. something like that. But that is funny. Say that again. <laughs> Only two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. And I'm not sure about the former. 
But the latter is certain. Okay. Well, right. we, we hope you've felt smarter uh, having listened to Absolutely. this episode yes, of the off <laughs> I know I am. Where we try to cover a multitude of topics and trivia every episode. And uh, we want to thank Jeff Burrell for chiming in on something on the show. And we yes. invite you to comment if you'd like to or give us any question or, or give us a question to do on the air we haven't heard from anybody for a while so please do all you have to do is go to our website theofframp.show scroll down to contact us and leave us your information well that's it for this week we hope you enjoy us next time i'm bob smith i'm marcia smith you've been listening to the, the off ramp the off ramp is produced in association with cpl radio online and the cedarbrook public library Cedarburg, Wisconsin.